What's the greatest injustice you have seen or heard of? Think of some of the examples of injustice we have seen just this year. The corruption in Belarus, the tragic killing of George Floyd, instances of police brutality, instances of rioting and anarchy, the horrible explosion in, in Lebanon that never should have happened, the unimaginable public executions in Iran that have continued largely unacknowledged by much of the world, the continuing violence in Armenia and Azerbaijan, and the history of genocide there. Maybe it's the attacks in Kenya, terrorist attacks in Nigeria, that continue to take the lives of hundreds and hundreds of innocent victims. There are so many other things that could be on that list. And your list would be different because of what you've seen, what you've experienced. What are we to do with that? What are we to do with injustice? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that injustice is evidence that our world is severely broken. And our perspective on just how broken it is will depend upon our background, our own experience, our family experience, and to some degree, the culture that we are from. Even these bars that you see here at Visharad send a different message to different people. For some people, when they look at prison bars, they think of it as a symbol of justice. Criminals are punished. For others, they see it as a symbol of oppression because so many that they know and people that they love have been in prison not for crime primarily, but because of the color of their skin, their spiritual beliefs, or the political opinions. Same bars but could portray a very, very different image. I will confess, I'm not smart enough to begin to know how the tide of injustice in our world can truly be turned. I don't know what political actions we can take that will make a difference, but I do know this. And this gives more hope than anything else could. The God of the universe, who knows you best and loves you most, stepped fully into injustice. And in fact, he willingly embraced injustice for you and for me. Because the greatest injustice in all of history is the betrayal, the sham trials, the scourging, and the execution of Jesus Christ. The execution of Jesus was the greatest injustice in all of history. And yet... It is an injustice he willingly chose. He chose to take on to provide gospel justice to all who believe. An innocent man was scorned, betrayed, mocked, beaten, condemned, and crucified so that he could stand in the place of the guilty, guilty men and women, so that they could be set free. You see, that's gospel justice. That's the good news of how God stepped into the brokenness and injustice of our world for us. So let's look at the scripture. Last week, Preston and Dan did a great job exploring what happened there in the garden um, where Jesus is praying with his disciples. And we're going to pick things up there with the betrayal, with the arrest, and the trials 
of Jesus. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Whenever I read the words of scripture about Jesus' betrayal and arrest and his trials, or see displayed like we did in the video, it tugs at my heart. And I recognize that that's, that's only a small portion of what he truly went through. Because even seeing the brutality, even seeing the injustice, we can't sense the weight that Jesus felt. Because not only was he betrayed, but he was actually bearing, he was carrying on his person our sin, the sins of the whole world. He suffered incredible injustice. And yet the Jewish people have prided themselves on their sense of fairness, equity, and justice. And rightly so. They laid a great foundation of justice that has benefited the world. The systems of justice practiced in many nations trace their roots and their origins back to the Judaic justice system. Deuteronomy chapter 16 verses 18 through 20 puts it this way. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. And you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise, and it subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice, shall you follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That is God's standard for judgment and for justice. Local judges judging the people with fairness and righteousness, never distorting what is true, never being partial, and absolutely never taking bribes. 
Throughout the history of the Jewish people, that standard was the basis of their system of jurisprudence. Therefore, it is incredibly remarkable that such a perversion of justice occurred in the trials of Jesus. Both the Hebrews and the Romans had very sophisticated forms of judicial process. They had rules and regulations that they were to follow. In fact, what they had in both cases were some of the best forms that human justice could provide. And yet they failed miserably. So let's look at the, the injustice of Jesus. Let's look at the trials of injustice, beginning with the illegal arrest. According to Hebrew law, the arrest of Jesus was illegal on four separate counts. First of all, all legal proceedings, including arrests, were forbidden at night. What happened in the case of Jesus? They came in the depth of night. It was a well-established and inflexible rule of Hebrew law that arrests, trials, and especially trials leading to capital punishment could not occur at night. And yet that's exactly what they did with Jesus. The second rule that they broke and, and gave absolutely no regard to was it was absolutely illegal in the Jewish judicial system to use a traitor, thus an accomplice, in effecting an arrest or in securing a conviction. It was forbidden by law. What we would call in, in the West, turning state's evidence, was absolutely illegal in Hebrew justice. The testimony of an accomplice is not permissible by rabbinic law. And no man's life, nor his liberty, nor his reputation can be endangered by the malice of one who has confessed himself a criminal, an accomplice of one of those who are judged. Thirdly, the arrest was not the result of a legal summons. His capture was not the result of a legal mandate from a court whose intentions were to conduct a legal trial for the purpose of reaching a righteous judgment. Instead, they just went out when they thought they could catch him and arrested Jesus. Fourthly, according to Hebrew law, it was illegal to bind an uncondemned man. And yet that's exactly what we read about in John 18. With Jesus, they broke every code of law. Not only that, but have you ever wondered why Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss? A kiss is a sign of affection, and it's certainly ironic to be betrayed with a kiss, but it's also significant. In fact, Jesus, in Luke chapter 22, verse 48, draws attention to it. He says this, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So why a kiss? In part, it's fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus would be betrayed by one of his own, by a close friend, as we read about prophetically in the book of Psalms. But second, and more significantly, this sets in motion a demonic mocking of the coronation of Jesus. Remember, at this point, when Judas has betrayed Jesus, Satan has already entered into him by the word, very words of Jesus. He has an agenda that he is bringing forward. And he's using not only the Jewish leaders, not only the Roman soldiers, but he's certainly using Judas to accomplish his purpose, 
his complete rebellion against God. The kiss was a sign mocking who Jesus really is. It's the same reason why when we read later on in the account, we see what's happening behind the scenes that isn't necessarily a part of prophecy, but we see that they put a crown on Jesus' head, a crown of thorns. They put a robe, a purple robe, on Jesus' body after it's been beaten. They put a a, a reed um, to look like a scepter in his hand. And it's all part of the mocking because Jesus was convicted of being the king of the Jews. Jesus was convicted of being the king of kings, and so they're mocking him. And this is demonic in its very heart. It highlights the injustice. What we have is a twisted, evil mirror reflection of reality. Here's what it says in Psalm 2. Psalm chapter 2 is um, the coronation hymn. It was used in Israel when a new king was crowned. But it points always, ultimately, to the high king, to God's son, the true king. Listen to what it says in verses 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kiss the son. What that means is pay homage to him or face his wrath. And yet Satan, through Judas, in betraying Jesus, is mocking Jesus with a kiss. And it will continue through with the crown, with the robe, and with the scepter. He's being mocked. You see, the kiss was part from the very beginning. In fact, the very first king that we see in the scripture, when he is anointed, uh, King Saul, Samuel anoints him and kisses him. That's the beginning of his coronation process. And so Satan, like I said, is taking a mirror and he's doing a reverse image of justice. He's taking and he's doing his best to try to mock everything that God is doing. But in reality, if we could see it from heaven's standpoint, the mirror is reversed. Because this very mocking of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, becomes the very thing that God the Father says, for this reason I have given him a name that is above every name. You see, Jesus was being mocked on earth, but the heart and love of Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for many, is celebrated in heaven, and is celebrated in the heart of every person who plates their trust in them. You see, Jesus took on the greatest injustice so that you and I could be set free. Perhaps you've faced a betrayal. Maybe a friend, a spouse, or a colleague has turned their back on you. Jesus understands what you've experienced. The scriptures indicate that from the beginning, Jesus knew who would betray him. For three years, Jesus was with Judas side by side, day after day, and Jesus loved him. 
His life was a continual expression of grace, calling out to Judas to find real life. But Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Jesus understands injustice. He understands betrayal. He understands you and I far better than we could ever imagine. No matter what you're going through, no matter how overwhelmed you feel, the God of the universe has already been there. And He promises to be with you and that He is for you. The injustice that was done to Jesus sets those who are guilty free because He willingly took on betrayal. He willingly took on the mockery. He willingly took on the assault of the enemy for you and for me. That's the betrayal. Secondly, let's look at the religious trials. We're only going to get to the religious trials today, not the, the trial before Pilate. But let's look at the trial before Annas. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood round a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple, where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, why did the band of soldiers and their leaders take Jesus to Annas in the middle of the night? Well, Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. And the truth is, Annas was the power behind the priesthood. Annas had been appointed high priest, and normally that would have been a lifelong office. But because it had um, degraded into a political position, and political uprisings and corruptions, the Romans removed Annas from the high priesthood. And so the priesthood changed hands numerous times during the first century. But from AD 6 to AD 60, 
either Annas, one of his five sons, his grandson, or his son-in-law Caiaphas was the high priest. So you can see that while Annas did not hold the actual position of high priest, he did hold the power over all the religious rulers. And Josephus, the historian, tells us that Annas was haughty, audacious, and cruel. At the time Jesus was brought before him, Annas may have been president of the Sanhedrin, which was the kind of the supreme court of Israel. And that position was not always held by the high priest. And so the Sanhedrin, as that supreme court at the time, would have been called the Council of the Seventy. So this first trial before Annas, who legally has no power, takes place at 2 a.m. And remember, it's illegal. The preliminary hearing before Annas uh, and later before Caiaphas were illegal on four counts. First of all, it was a violation of the rule that forbade any kind of proceedings to happen at night. Secondly, Hebrew law pro prohibited a judge or a magistrate from sitting alone, from questioning an accused person judiciously, to sit in judgment over them and their legal rights by day or by night. There were no one-judge courts allowed in Israel. And yet the very first trial that we see is that one judge is passing judgment on Jesus. The, the commentators that look at Jewish law says it this way, Be not a sole judge, for there is no sole judge but one, God himself. It was a well-known saying within the Jewish Mishnah, because it was believed that only God was capable of judging without counsel. And so this was an illegal trial. Thirdly, private preliminary hearings, no matter how many judges were present, were specifically prohibited by Jewish law. A principle perpetually reproduced in Hebrew scripture relates to two conditions of publicity and liberty. An accused man was never subjected to a private or secret examination, investigation, or trial. Lest, in his perplexity, he furnish damaging testimony against himself. You see, God had established the law in such a way to, to keep people from condemning themselves falsely under the stress when there could be corruption involved. Fourthly, the striking of Jesus by the officer during the hearing before Annas was an act of brutality which Hebrew jurisprudence did not tolerate. It was an outrage, um, an outrage to every idea that was held close into the heart of Jewish judges. The normal state was very pure and lofty. In Jesus, in his reply, to the one who struck him, asking, why did you strike me in John 18, 23, Jesus planted himself squarely upon his legal rights as a Jewish citizen. It was in every word that he spoke the voice of pure Hebrew justice. Such an act by a court officer striking a defendant during a court trial would be illegal in any court in the world. But Jesus took on injustice for us. Jesus was right in calling out and asking why he was struck. But no one responded. 
Now it's interesting, in this first trial, when they're trying to determine how they're going to convict Jesus, that no charges are brought, but Jesus is beaten. The very purpose of the trial was to gain evidence so that they could then take that to the council later on and have a reason to be able to justify condemning Jesus. They'd already decided that Jesus needed to die. Now they just needed to find a reason to justify their actions. But they couldn't find a charge. This trial before Annas was the first step. Secondly, after they take him to Annas, they take him to Caiaphas, who is the high priest, who does have legal jurisdiction. But again, those same rules apply. In Matthew chapter 26 and 53, we see the trial before Caiaphas. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Caiaphas tears his clothes. Not just clothes. He tore the high priest's robes, the robes of the highest office, the robes that represented going in before God himself. What he did was expressly forbidden by God's word. It was a common thing to tear one's clothing as a sign of sorrow or indignation. But not the high priest, and especially not when you're wearing the robes of your office. If a high priest intentionally tore his clothing, he was automatically disqualified as high priest and was to receive a death sentence according to Leviticus chapter 10, verse 6, and chapter 21, verse 10. Caiaphas' very actions during the trial should have condemned him to death and not Jesus. Isn't that ironic? The official garments of the high priest were symbolic of the Messiah. As such, an act would reveal a rage that was beneath the dignity of the high priest. An ordinary Israelite 
could, as an emblem of bereavement, tear his garments. But for the high priest, this was forbidden expressly and punishable by death. Caiaphas goes on. Did you see more what he says? Look at verse 66 again. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit on his face and struck him. Some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is it that struck you? They begin to beat Jesus, and this action in and of itself was expressly forbidden. But those gathered there mock Jesus. They arrested him illegally. Um, they've had two illegal trials, and yet no evidence of wrongdoing is presented, only injustice. The end result of that trial was there's nothing to present, there's nothing to condemn Jesus over. Those that they had tried to get to witness against Jesus, their testimonies could never agree. So that brings us to the third trial. We read about it in Matthew chapter 27, and it's a trial before the Sanhedrin. This is the high court of Israel. Here's what it says. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away to be delivered over to Pilate, the governor. We don't have time to explore them now, but there are at least 24 rules of jurisprudence, legal rules, that the priests and the Sanhedrin broke in these first three trials of Jesus. 24 rules. Let me share with you just one because it, it may be one of the most unique rules uh, in all of, of judicial law. Here's what the criminal jurisprudence of the ancient Hebrews says. If none of the judges defend the one who is being charged and all pronounce him guilty, having no defender in the court, the verdict of guilty is invalid and the sentence of death could not be executed. The reason for the rule is simple. It was the duty of the judges to defend the man. And at least one of them had to do it. Remember, under Hebrew law, there was no defense lawyers. This was the work of the judges, of the Sanhedrin themselves. At least one of them had to stand up and defend Jesus, and yet none of them do. And that's just one of the 24 rules of justice that they broke. You see, from the very beginning, this was a miscarriage of justice. It was, in, in fact, a mockery of everything that justice, as a reflection of the character and nature of God, is all about. Everything that would have pointed to justice was set aside out of jealousy and hatred of Jesus. But here's the real trial of Jesus. The real trial of Jesus is not that which appeared before man. The true trial of Jesus took place earlier in the garden. Because you see, Jesus stood on trial for us. He took our place, not in the court of man, but in the court of heaven. This is the trial of mercy and atonement. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. But I believe here in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus began to sweat drops of blood, is when He began to bear the weight of our sin. Jesus was tempted, quite possibly by Satan himself in a visible form, to escape the cup of redemption that he was born to drink. Luke twenty-two forty-two says this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Quite possibly, when Jesus began to sweat the drops of blood, it was the beginning of his bearing our sin. In the garden, Jesus' flesh was tempted to avoid suffering. Three times he was tempted. But three times Jesus' answer was, Not my will, but your will, Father, be done. Jesus chose obedience, and and it became his conviction. In the garden, just a few minutes later, Peter would draw a sword and cut the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And Jesus told Peter in John 18, 11, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He drank the cup of bearing our sin. Jesus' emotions wanted the cup of sin to pass from him. But his will chose obedience, chose the Father's will to freely drink the cup of redemption and to become sin for us. Hebrews 2.9 says it this way, But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly when Jesus took our sin upon him. But from that moment in the garden, when he began to sweat drops of blood, he continually suffered. God may have placed our sin upon him only on the cross, but it would make sense that all of the suffering that he endured through his arrest, through the unjust trials, through the beatings and the scourging, through the carrying of the cross, were all part of his bearing our sin for us. And it is so like God to choose the same location, a garden where the curse of sin began, to in a similar way use a garden to be the place where our cleansing of sin began as well. You see, the real trial that Jesus stood before was a trial for us. We stand convicted. Someone had to pay the price. And Jesus willingly chose to drink that cup for you and for me. Christ died our death The wages of sin is death according to the scripture. And Jesus Christ paid the price. As we read the account of Jesus' betrayal, arrest, corrupt trials, his torture, we must also recognize our own 
guilt. That he died for us. That he was convicted. That he was beaten for us. You see, if we want to really understand what God thinks of our sin, we need to see how Jesus was treated. Too often, we sacrifice Jesus to our greed like Judas, who betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Often, we are envious like the priests, seeking to protect our own reputation and position. We deny Christ. Oftentimes, we're driven by our ambition like Pilate, and it prevents us from doing what is right. We chose to serve our own wants and our own needs, just like those who condemned Jesus, because you see, we're all guilty. There's an old spiritual song that says, Where were you when they crucified my Lord? Yes, we were there in our sin as it was placed upon Jesus on the cross. And our rejection today and our disobedience shames His sacrifice and His love. Here's how I want us to end. I'm going to put on the screen um, a passage from Isaiah 53. And I want to invite us to read it together as an expression of worship to the Lord. Because this is what Jesus Christ did for you and for me. This passage in Isaiah 53 is a glimpse into the love and justice of God. For it shows us from God's perspective how Jesus Christ bore our sin. So I want to invite you right where you are in your home to read this together with me out loud. Read it as a confession of faith in the one who bore our sin for us, by whose stripes we are healed. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty, that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. 
And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. The injustice Jesus faced was to justify you and me. He lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserve. The greatest injustice of all of history has become the good news of grace. Will you trust Him? How much more could God do to prove His love for you? God demonstrated His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. He died for you. The innocent one took the place of the guilty. That's how much He loves you. Will you trust Him? today.